Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Well, let's do what we just sang by opening God's word and tasting and seeing that he's good from Romans chapter 9. So we've taken a couple month break this summer from our series through Romans, and praise God, we're back into it. And we're diving into the beginning of Romans chapter 9, and we're entering into some of the deepest waters in the whole Bible. So buckle your seatbelts and um, put your crash helmets on, and let's get ready to do this thing. Let me uh, tell you before I read Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 8 that today is the first day that, or today, this Sunday, Midtree Church, our church plan is formally constituting as a church. They've been meeting for the Sundays in July and this Sunday they're going to kind of organize officially as a church and then the following Sunday, next Sunday, they will will be really open to whosoever will come and join their services and so let's pray for Midtree here in just a moment. And for God's grace to them as they, as they gather today and as they launch next Sunday uh, more, more publicly. And then this morning after we look at God's word, we're going to come around the Lord's table together as is our custom on the first Sunday of the month and receive communion. And I pray that God would prepare our hearts to, to remember the gospel as we gather as a church family. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for... Your grace to us for Midtree Church, for the brothers and sisters that went out from among us to plant that church as they, as they formally formed together as a local church this morning. We pray for your grace upon them, for the witness of the gospel to be so clear and evident in that body of believers. We pray for their following Sunday and pray for visitors to come and unbelievers to come and hear the good news of the gospel and repent and believe. We pray for their logistical needs, for a more adequate meeting space to open up to them in the near future. We pray that Christ would be sweeter to them this Sunday and in the coming Sundays. We thank you for not just Midtree, but all of the other Bible-believing churches in our area. We pray, Lord, for the Baptist churches and the Methodist churches and the Presbyterian churches and the Pentecostal churches in our city that your grace would abound to them and that Christ and his sufficiency would ring clear from the pulpits in Columbus and that sinners would be called to repentance and believers would be built up, encouraged, and edified that you, Lord, would make Columbus your city We pray for our state and our nation. We pray for our political leaders. We pray that you'd give them wisdom and humility. We thank you for our military and for the men and women, even from this church, that are deployed in harm's way for our national interests. We pray grace to them. We thank you for the work of the gospel in other countries, other cultures. We thank you for our brothers and sisters that are not part of of this nation, but are part of the body of Christ. And we thank you for the work that they are doing. We pray for encouragement to them, blessing and safety in hostile situations. And now, Lord, as we open your word, as we get back into Romans, Lord, 
I pray that we would decrease and that you would increase. We cannot come to Romans with a man-centered view. We will miss the point. It will be an exercise in futility. We need to have our paradigm shifted. We need to see you as the center, the blazing center of all things. And that alone will satisfy our souls. So help us with that today as we begin this journey through Romans 9. For the glory of your name, for the salvation of any that are not yet trusting in Jesus that are here, and for the building up of the body of Christ, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I read Romans 9 in the first portion there, let me, let me just mention, as I mentioned in my prayer, that I want to orient us to how we're going to approach Romans 9, 10, and 11 in particular, but really all of the Bible. I want you to understand that all of the Bible, when read rightly through a Christ-centered, God-centered lens, it reorients our hearts. The Bible is not a collection of moral McNuggets that we just sort of come to and snack on when we want to. Unfortunately, that's how many of us, by default, in our culture, read the Bible. And we read it with a man-centered lens as to what God can do for us in times when we need Him. But that's not what the Bible is. It's not a collection of spiritual Aesop's fables. It is a revelation from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, one unified story of God Himself and how He has created all things for His glory and how He is superintending all things for His glory, primarily through redeeming a people through the work of His Son, Christ, on the cross in His death, His life, death, resurrection. That's the story of the Bible. It is radically, gloriously God-centered. And we don't really understand the Bible unless we read it in that way with those types of lenses on. Now, admittedly, this requires us to at times postpone gratification as we're reading the Bible. And we as Americans are not good at that. We're not good at that. We get, I mean, can you imagine going back to the dark ages when AOL had dial up and you actually had to wait to get on the internet? Those poor people in the mid-90s. But we have to read the Bible in a way that puts God at the center in ourselves. It delays gratification. And this has a much longer lasting benefit for our souls. We must read the Bible. And instead of putting ourselves at the center, which will never satisfy because we will always want more because ourselves were never meant to satisfy ourselves. Rather, we need to read the Bible with God as the center who alone can satisfy and when we read the Bible in that way, it gives longer lasting, more eternal answers to life's deepest questions. And it gives us more than just tips for this life, it prepares us for the next. But let me also say that the Bible, especially as deep as Romans 9, 10, and 11 are, is understandable. Now if you come in here on Sunday mornings not thinking at all about the Bible, um, and just coming in cold, it's going to be more difficult. And so I urge us over the coming weeks to spend some time reading through Romans 9, 10, and 11. Stir up your affection for God's Word through your own Bible reading, and then let's come and let's dive into this, to this glorious text. Let me read 
the first, where am I, there they are, reaching, <laughs> there's nothing up there. Let me read Romans 9, verses 1 through, read verses 1 through 8. This is Paul speaking. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Okay, now here's what we're going to do. <clears throat> In a moment, Lord willing, we're going to get to just the beginning of what Paul's burden is here in Romans chapter 9. But it's been a couple months since we've been in Romans, and I think it would be unwise of us to just parachute down into Romans chapter 9, which is in the middle of this letter to the Roman church, without understanding or at least reviewing what has been going on and what has brought Paul to this point in Romans chapter 9 where he writes these words. Obviously, Paul is in anguish here. He has a burden. And the burden is that his ethnic countrymen, the Israelites, seemingly have rejected Christ and his gospel. So, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's going to take up this objection that he is anticipating that if the Jews, God's Old Testament ethnic people, have by and large rejected Jesus, then has this glorious gospel that he has been establishing in chapters 1 through 8, has it actually failed? That's really, I think, the point of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. But before we can understand fully that argument, let's, let's just review Romans chapter 1 through 8 up to this point. So do this. If you have a Bible, and I think it'd be really good for you to have your Bible open before you, go just flip to the left to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I think the, the point, and we're just going to list these out on the screen by way of review for you. I think the point of the beginning of Romans chapter 1, let's say Romans chapter 1 part A, is that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. That's, that's the first thing that he opens with in his, his greeting. He says, he's, he's greeting the Roman church, and he's really saying, there, look at verse, verse 5, I think it is, that his, the point of God calling him is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, meaning Jesus' name, amongst all the nations. So Paul is saying, God has called me. 
He's made me alive in the gospel. He's given me this ministry to preach the gospel, to bring about this God-glorifying obedience amongst all peoples, all time, in all places. And then at the bottom of, of that little section, at least at the bottom of my page, halfway through Romans chapter 1, Paul says these famous words that many of us know. He says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he's saying that the gospel, and that word gospel means literally the good news. It's a proclamation. It's a statement of what God has done to reconcile a people to himself. And then he says, for in it, verse 17, in it, meaning the gospel, this proclamation of what God has done, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you remember a year and a half ago, and certainly you do, when we went through Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, that we looked at how Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, was troubled by this passage. As a Catholic monk, he was troubled by this passage, and he thought that verse 17 meant the righteousness of God in the sense of the judgment of God, the holiness of God that he could never attain for himself. And so Romans and the message of Romans terrified him. And he was understanding in this text in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God, meaning the holiness of God, which he dreaded because he knew, he innately knew, he instinctively knew that he was by nature a sinner and he could never stand before this righteous God. But then he realized, after staring at Romans over a long time, that what actually Paul is saying in here is that in verse 17, the righteousness of God that Paul is speaking about is not just merely the righteousness of God of his character, but the righteousness that God gives through faith. In other words, it's the righteousness of God that he imparts to the people that he's saving, and that is the good news of the gospel. So not only is God righteous, certainly that's true, but the good news of the gospel is that he makes people righteous. And when Martin Luther realized that, he said Romans chapter 1, verse 17, was like a door to paradise that swung open for me, and I entered into it and was saved. But then the second half of Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, part B, all the way through the sec first half of Romans chapter 3 is now Paul's explanation of how everyone stands in need of God's righteousness. All mankind is guilty before God. The second half of Romans chapter 1 talks about how Gentiles, people, just all people everywhere have suppressed the truth and are by nature sinners. Romans chapter 2 talks about how even the Jews who had the specific revelation of God, the written revelation of God, have rejected him and are by nature sinners. And the first half of Romans chapter 3 concludes with this stunning statement, this all-indicting statement. 
towards the middle of Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 19. It says, now we know, this is Paul's summary of the situation, the status of all mankind, for we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And the point he's been making in Romans chapter 1 and 2 is that all people are under the law, whether it is the law of revelation just written in the heavens, which all men have rejected, or whether it is the specific law that God gave to the specific people in the Old Testament, the Jews, all people are indicted by the law and are guilty, which brings him to this conclusion, so that every mouth is stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So we, we all stand equally needy before a holy God, regardless of your background. You get that. Don't, don't let the category of Jew and Gentile be so distant for you. Personalize that category. Think about this, whether you grew up in a church or whether you grew up far from God, no matter your situation, whether you have got a perfect attendance for every VBS ever offered in Columbus, Georgia, or whether you never darken the days, the door of the church, and today is your first time in a religious gathering, you, like every other person, regardless of their background or their privilege or their benefit, stand equally needy, fallen, guilty before a holy God. That's, that's the point. Nobody squeaks in because their mama played the piano. Or their daddy was the preacher. And nobody's too far gone because they've never been to a church. All are held accountable before God. Which brings us to, but by the way, you say, well, didn't you say gospel was good news? That sounds like really bad news. <laughs> but there can be no good news unless it's answering the bad news, which Paul has just told us in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, which gets us to Romans chapter 3 in the second part, and this is the message of the gospel, and it's this, that Jesus justifies those who have faith by grace. Maybe one of the most important paragraphs that has ever been written is verse 21 through 26 of Romans 3. Let me just read it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness that God is going to give, okay? Because the law in the Old Testament, it displayed God's righteousness and it demanded God's righteousness, but it couldn't make unrighteous people righteous. And it's not because God's law has failed, but because it was never the purpose of God's law in the Old Testament to actually make people righteous, it was enacted, it was given to display God's, to really to show us what is right, God's holiness, to show us what is wrong with us, our sin, and to push us what is needed, which is Christ. And so the law and the prophets the Old Testament were pointing to, they were bearing witness to it in verse 21, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That's an important word, meaning made right, exonerated, cleared from their sin, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so the stunning good news of the gospel is the way God makes people right, the way he makes them righteous, 
is by this Old Testament that bears witness to the one that is coming who will finally make us righteous. And it's Jesus who, and here it says here in, in, in verse 25, look at it, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Meaning that Jesus lived the life perfectly that the Old Testament law of God commanded where none of us could live. Jesus lived it perfectly obedient as a man, but yet he is fully God. And then he lays down his life as a sacrifice, as a substitution, as a propitiation. And that word means the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of Christ. He lays it down and takes God the Father's wrath for us. He satisfies it. He extinguishes it. He, he drinks damnation dry. He propitiates the wrath of God that was against guilty sinners. He does this. This is the cross. This is the very crux of the gospel right here. In fact, I'm going to make a point that maybe Romans chapter 3 verse 25 is the very epicenter of the gospel in the whole Bible. And, and, and you know what? I know I'm excitable, but I think you should be more excited about that. Okay? All right. I know school's starting tomorrow, and you're wondering whether you got all your stuff in your backpack, whether or not it's going to be cool. That was always a thing. Is your backpack cool enough? But let's, let's see this. That's the very heart of the gospel. And then he says, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God still remains just. It's not like he's let anybody in, like he's not changed the curve at the end of the semester. He's not graded on a curve his standard is perfect, and his perfect standard has been poured out on Jesus, who bore the wrath for our sin and rose again in victory over our sin. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. And he does all of this by grace through faith. And that's the message of the next chapter, Romans chapter 4. And Paul's point in Romans chapter 4, as he's writing to in this instance, he's got an eye towards his Jewish audience, is that grace and faith have always been God's plan of salvation. So this law, he's saying, don't misunderstand the law of the Old Testament and obedience in the Old Testament. This law that God gave, these good works that God commanded, were never really the way God intended to save people. He knew that they were just a kind of tutor, a schoolmaster, a sheepdog to push us to Christ. And as an example of that, to show his audience who were savvy with the Old Testament, he uses Abraham, who is this great father of the Jewish nation, and he says, even Abraham, this man who you are holding up as a great, obedient, righteous man, even his righteousness and obedience wasn't something that God saw and responded to, but his righteousness and obedience was something that God gave to him. God gave him grace. He 
gave him faith and Abraham responded to God because God first initiated his love in Abraham's life. So even Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, even Abraham is not saved by his works, but by grace through the faith that God worked in him before he knew anything about God. That's the point of Romans chapter 4. All are saved by faith through grace in Christ. And even this faith is a gift that God must give. And then Romans chapter 5, man, Romans chapter 5, I was reading through it again this week, and I'm like, man, let's just preach that bad boy again. What's Romans chapter 5 about? This justification that we receive by faith that God works in us just as he did in Abraham. The point of Romans chapter 5 is that the result of this justification is now that grace reigns in the life of the redeemed. Romans chapter 5 is one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible that, that, that God reigns through grace. And that all people are either still in Adam, our first father, who we are dead in Adam. We're born dead in our sins because we're all descendants of Adam. There's this nature in us. Or if grace, if God has saved us by his grace, he has put us in Christ through whom righteousness reigns. So we are, our head, the head of our race is either one or two. It's either Adam from whom we inherit sin and death, or if God has put us in Christ, from Christ we inherit grace and Christ's righteousness. And Paul's stunning argument in Romans chapter 5 is just as we have inherited death and judgment from Adam, Adam, if we are in Christ, we inherit Jesus' righteousness. Now Jesus' righteousness is given, it's imputed to us. That's what he's getting back to in Romans chapter 1 where he says the righteousness of God is revealed. It's given, it's not earned, it's given to the person who is in Christ. And now, his conclusion at the end of Romans chapter 5 is that grace reigns. Grace reigns, but he's anticipating an objection, and that's what Romans 6 is all about. They think, well, if grace reigns, then we can just live however we want, because I can just sin now and do whatever I want, because God's gracious, right? And he says, no, that's not the point. The point of Romans chapter 6 is that grace makes us alive to God so that we may obey him and dead to sin. Not necessarily free from the presence of sin in this life, clearly, but dead to sin so that we can fight it. And the point of Romans chapter 6, he's saying, is that we have been united with Christ by faith. That when we believe in Jesus, that we're grafted in, we become part of his body. We become one with Jesus. And now what's Christ's is ours. And we are in him. We've been made alive. And now we are able to resist, to fight sin, to grow in grace. And now we have a new master, whereas sin was our master and we were its slave. Now we have a new master and that master is Christ and we can reign with him and fight sin. That's the point of Romans chapter 6. 
And then Romans chapter 7, he takes up this objection, which is, well, what about the law? What was the whole point of the law in the Old Testament? And he's saying that the role of the law in the Christian life, it's not binding in the sense that it can now condemn you because Jesus has taken the sting of the law, but the law is a kind of tutor. It encourages you to live for Christ. And so although the law can no longer condemn us, it can instruct us. John Calvin said that the law... The Old Testament law in the life of the New Testament Christian is like the whip to a stubborn donkey. It prods us to obedience as we read about God's character. He didn't use the word donkey, by the way. (laughs) Which brings us to the mountain peak of Scripture, Romans chapter 8, where Paul is concluding his argument. He's concluding, he has established the gospel, and he's concluding his argument, and he's saying all this is true. So let's just summarize. He's saying, okay, God is holy. All mankind has fallen. There's no hope for man to make himself right. So God sent his son Jesus to propitiate his wrath, and by grace he works faith in those whom he saves. And now they're not saved by works, but by the gracious work of God on our behalf through Christ. And this is all the consequence of that beautiful salvation. Grace now reigns in our life so that we can fight sin. And now we have perspective on what the Old Testament was really about. What's his conclusion in Romans chapter 8? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans chapter 8 is this incredible explanation of the whole Christian life. This is where you stand when you are in Christ. Now you can fight by the Spirit of God that dwells in you to become more like Jesus. And you're going to struggle. But even that struggle is weaning you from this world and wooing you to heaven. And oh, by the way, lean forward into eternity because it starts with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Now in all these things, verse 37 of Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The gospel will bring you The good news of the gospel is not that God has given you a nudge and he's seeing who will finish the deal, but the good news of the gospel is he saves dead sinners, makes them alive, and guarantees that he will bring them all the way home. That's Romans 1 through 8. That's good news. And now in Romans chapter 9, Paul is answering what he knows will be an objection. Okay, if this gospel is so glorious, so powerful, so God-centered, why has it seemingly failed to bring about the salvation of God's Old Testament chosen people, the ethnic Jews. That's the point of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Paul is saying, it may appear to you that God's word, his gospel, has failed, but it's not failed. And let me just summarize his answer. He's saying that all along, God has determined to save a people and to be good to a people, 
not merely because they are ethnically Jews, but God has determined to save a people, not because of anything in them, but because of his sovereign election, his sovereign grace. And so God has made a people from a people, and his word has succeeded. And he will bring a nation from a nation, and that new nation shall be the people of God for all time, the church. And that's going to be what we get into. We can't handle it all today, otherwise you would hate me because we would be here until midnight. But thank God, next Sunday's coming, and we're just going to plow our way through this. But I want us to see just a couple things in these verses we read. First, I want us to see Paul's heart for his people. Paul's heart for his ethnic countrymen. Look at verses 1 and 2 and 3 again of Romans 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness me, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So he's, his heart is burning over the lack of belief amongst his countrymen his fellow Jews. And so even though, think about, think about everything that's going on in Paul's heart. Even though in the coming verses in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's going to explain how this doesn't trouble his understanding of God's redemptive plan and eternal plan from eternity past to save a people by grace through his sovereign election. But nevertheless, even though he knows that's the case, and this has not shaken his confidence in God's power to save, he still loves his people, and it's causing him sorrow, because he loves his fellow man. And he says there in verse 3, for I wish, he goes so far as to say, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. In other words, this is reminiscent of Moses in Exodus 32, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and they're building this golden calf, just, just idol worshiping. And Moses is like, oh, pulling out his hair. And he says, God, blot me out before you blot these people out. In other words, Paul loved his countrymen. How can we apply this to our lives? Do we have this type of burden that Paul has for souls? Let's not just let this say, oh, well, that was the Apostle Paul. He had a, a kind of special ministry. We should glean from this, and Paul's heart should should, should do something to our, our heart. Do we have a burden for people's souls? Now, I know that, the, that, that this isn't an apples-to-apples apples analogy. America is a much more diverse nation than Israel was in the Old Testament, certainly ethnically. But my point of application here is, do we, do we have a burden for souls? I think, I think that sometimes we as Christians fall into one of two ditches. One is a kind, of, a kind of unhealthy nationalism where it's a kind of, it's like a God and country sort of unbiblical Christianity where we're like so proud to be Americans that we actually don't realize that it's the gospel that saves and not being American that saves. And that's not what Paul understood here. He knew that nobody was going to be right with God merely because they were a Jew. Nobody's going to be right with God because they watch Fox News. 
No, I'm not. I'm not. Some, 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 some people, some of you believe that inherently. You think that if you are morally right and conservative, you think you're right with the holy God, and that is a lie straight from the pits of hell. It's a nationalistic heresy. And if you march in the 4th of July parade and you love on the soldiers, that you're somehow right with God because he's pleased with America in some sort of way, that is a lie. And, and Paul knew that too. Israel was the inheritor of much more of God's grace than America is of God's grace. And yet Paul is realizing here at the beginning of Romans chapter 9 that that's not going to save Israel and that produced in him a heart for Israel. Now let's not fall off on the other ditch either. Let's not be cynical about America. Let's not be sarcastic about our country. Let's have a kind of biblical, Paul-like position towards this place that God has put us. Thank God that he caused us, those of us that were born here or our citizens here or live here now, that you're here. God knew that. Acts 17 says that he has determined, he's pre-appointed the boundary places of your dwelling and he's put you where you are, not so that you could be a good American or a good citizen merely, but so that you could be a good citizen of the kingdom and that you could bear witness to your fellow countrymen or wherever you find yourself of God's grace which alone can save. Do we have that type of heart? Do we, do we live in that kind of duality? Do we realize that God has us here as citizens of this earthly kingdom because, not because this is our home, but because our home is coming and if we love our fellow man, we want as many of them to come with us. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said about this heart that Paul had in Romans 9. If you are saved yourself, be on the watch for the souls of others. Your own heart will not prosper unless it is filled with intense concern to bless your fellow men. The life of your soul lies in faith. Its health lies in love. He who does not pine to lead others to Jesus has never been under the spell of love himself. Get busy doing the work of the Lord, the work of love. Begin at home. Visit your neighbors next. Enlighten the town or the street where you live. Scatter the word of the Lord wherever your hand can reach. Oh, praise God. Let's, let's, let's have Paul's heart. Here's the point I'm making. Let's, let, let's be instructed by Paul's heart for his countrymen. Let's realize that the only thing that saves them is God's grace and nothing else. Let's not be cynical towards them. Let's not be sim overly sympathetic towards them. Let's have a gospel lens towards our fellow man. And let's love them like Paul loved his people. Which then leads me to the second little point I want us to see here is, that is Israel's privilege. You look, look at Israel's privilege in verses 4 and 5. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to God, to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Israel was a privileged people, there's no doubt. God, in his sovereign decree, and because of his plan, decided to work through a people, and through these people, he gave incredible privilege he gave them the law. He gave them the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. 
He gave them the prophets. He, he gave them the tabernacle. He gave them the temple. He gave them all of these good things. And they were a blessed people. But even those things cannot save. But yet Israel was privileged. And this even produces more anguish in Paul's heart. And what's the application for us? Many of us have been given much by God. How have we responded to God's grace in our lives? To whom much is given, much is required. Oh, that God would, would, would never let us as a church be comfortable with where we are, just kind of growing sort of selfish and happy. But may we realize that God's blessing to us is not for our sake, but for the sake of his glory amongst all peoples. In fact, that's what he says to Abraham when he first establishes Israel. He says that I will form a nation through you, and through you I will bless all the peoples of the earth. Dear friends, if God has saved you, he has saved you to bring glory to his name through your life. You are a mere fleshly piece of PVC pipe that is meant to funnel the grace of God for the glory of God to the world. That's what you, that's what you exist for. Whether you're a housewife or you're a CEO or a missionary, you exist to bring glory to God through your life. He has justified you so that he can use your life to justify others. That, that's it. That's, that's why God has, has saved you. And that's where joy is truly found. Which then leads us to Paul's point here. And this is the point that we're going to make in the coming weeks. Is that God has not failed. Look again at verse 6. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, one of the things that we're going to have to do as we read Romans 9, 10, and 11 is we're going to have to understand in context what he means at various times by the word Israel. Sometimes when he says the word Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's speaking about ethnic Israel. Speaking about the physical offspring of Abraham. But sometimes in Romans 9, 10, and 11, when he says the word Israel, he's speaking about spiritual Israel, those who believe, both ethnic Jews and Gentiles, all those who believe. And there's this great distinction between physical ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel, those who are descended merely by the flesh and those who are descended by the spirit who believe. And we have to read with slow with clarity to understand that if we're going to understand what Paul is saying in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And he's saying it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, not everybody that is ethnically Jewish is actually Jewish. Do you see that? Remember what we read at the end of Romans chapter 2? He says that a true Jew is not somebody merely of the flesh who's circumcised of the flesh, but whose heart is circumcised. And this is the radical point that Paul is going to make in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And one of the ways that he's going to make that point 
is he is going to make that point by saying that God has chosen a people for himself, not through the flesh, but through his sovereign purpose of election. And he has elected, he's made a people, Jew and Gentile, and he's circumcised their heart, and he has made them the true Israel of faith that has descended from this shell of the Old Testament physical Israel. So, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. This means that just because you're an ethnic Jew does not mean that you're actually a true Jew. But the children of the promise, those who believe in Christ, are counted as offspring, are God's true people, God's true Israel. And that's going to be a weighty message that we're going to wade into for the next coming weeks. The point, friends, let's bring this home before we come around the Lord's table. God has not failed. Because what Paul's concerned about here is if we look at human history and we realize that for the most part, God's Old Testament people rejected him, that might undermine our confidence in God's ability to do what he said he would do. You, you know, do you see that? If God can't do that, that he made so clear that he was going to do, then can he be trusted with anything at all, even my little life? And Paul is going to show us here that what we thought God was up to, actually God was actually up to something quite more profound, and he has succeeded. And the point is, if he, if he is able to do that, he's able to succeed in your life too, friends. God has not failed. He will never fail. He can be trusted. He will bring you all the way home. You see, Romans 8 can't be stood upon if he, God's purpose of grace hasn't been accomplished. If we don't know what God's eternal plan is to bring a people to himself, then how do I know that the gospel will bring me, measly little me, all the way home? And Paul's jealous to make this point that God can be trusted. He brings all of his people all the way home, and he can do it for you too. That's the point of Romans 9, 10, and 11. I, in fact, I think that's the point of the whole Bible. And that's, I'm done. I don't know how to end this thing. Let me pray. <laughs> let's, let's prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. And think about this. Think about this as we come to the table. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come to this table with us because you're a Christian. You're part of the family of God. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I really encourage you not to come to the table because we don't want you to do something that you don't yet believe. You shouldn't do that. Paul gives a very clear instruction about that. Don't come to the table and profess something you believe. And when we come to the table, what we're professing is that Jesus' body was broken for us and that his blood was spilled for us. It means that our hope is in Christ alone, that gospel that we've talked about, that Jesus died for us to reconcile us to a holy God. That's what we're going to do. But the point is this, friends, is that you see that even the most 
wicked sin in the history of the universe, the crucifixion of the Son of God, that seemed like failure in the moment was actually part of God's eternal plan to turn evil upside down on his head and to redeem a people to defeat death through death. This Puritan named John Owens wrote this book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. So never was there a time when it seemed like God had failed more than when the eternal Son of God died on the cross. But don't you see that God had an eternal plan to offer up His Son, not to appease the devil, but to appease His own wrath and to defeat hell, death, and the grave. And so when we come to this table, we are reminded that God never fails. He is not only our sacrifice, but he is our victor. He is not only the lamb that is slain, but he is the lion who roars for eternity. And that's the table we come to. And that's the meal we take. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table, reorient our our hearts and our minds and our eyes to a radically God-centered view of all things. Behold what manner of love that you should pour out on us and call us the children of God. That you would defeat death by death itself. That death would be swallowed up by victory. That the perfect, obedient Son of God, God in the flesh, fully God, truly God, truly man, would bear the weight of all of our sin for those that are trusting in Christ, trusting in Him, extinguish it, absorb it, satisfy it, remove it, as John read this morning, from the, as far as the east is from the west, and would make us right so that we can stand righteous because of his righteousness before you, that we can come to this table and remember and celebrate that very truth that you have not failed, and that you will bring your people safely home. Lord, let us see this truth this morning. And in the coming weeks, as we tread into these beautiful, deep, fresh waters of Romans 9, 10, and 11, as we come to your table, strengthen us. May we examine our hearts. May we stir up our affection for Christ. May we love you more. May we love our fellow man more. And may we follow Jesus more passionately. May this meal nourish our souls to live for you in this coming week and month. In Jesus' name.